Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Good. You need to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we're going to be today. Chapter 4, actually. I, I want to say something to you this morning that I've said to you a, a hundred times in, in the last three years, um, that I am convinced more and more all the time that if we will be faithful simply to pick up the Bible and study it, that God will be faithful to give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. And, and he has proven that again this week. And it's going to be a little bit difficult for me to share it with you uh, today, uh, partly because a lot, of, a lot of what this text has to do with is me and other folks who lead the church. And so you're going to hear a lot of me talking about what God has done in my heart uh, through the text this week. But I hope that you will see yourself in some ways as a leader uh, of the church. Uh, that the church is not uh, governed and ruled by a few people who have an office here at the church, but we are the church, right? And in the, in the language of last week, y'all are the church, right? Y'all are the, the temple of God, and that's good news. And so I want you to be able to adapt a little bit of this text um, to your own leadership here at First Baptist Church. Last, last week we saw a text uh, that brought really a sobering warning uh, to all of us. Because of God's great love for the church, we must be very careful how we interact with her. Uh, we saw Paul tell us that we are the temple of God. Why are y'all the temple of God? Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in y'all. Together, Not just as individuals, not just as private citizens, but collectively. We are together in this thing, right? It is plural use, and we need always to remember that, that we are the temple uh, and God dwells here. We talked about how that we need to be building this temple. We are either building uh, the temple or we are tearing it down. And the text last week spoke of the great danger for those who would tear down the temple, for those who would tear down the church. For those who would seek to disrupt, seek to um, disunify, seek to tear down. For those who would seek to intentionally do that, it, it is bad news. We talked about how God loves the church greatly, so much so that he gave his own son for her. And so much so that he speaks of her as his bride. He speaks of the church as his bride. And I'm telling you, if you mess with a man's bride, you can expect trouble from the man, right? If you mess with Jesus' bride, you should expect trouble from him, right? And so we need to be very careful, all of us need to be very careful how we are interacting with the church. We want to honor uh, Christ's bride in every possible way. If you are uh, a terror, um, the, the good news is God changes people from terrors of the church to builders of the church all the time. And there's no greater example of that in scripture than the guy who wrote this book. Uh, the guy who wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul, was a terror of the church, right? He was a professional terror of the church, and yet God got a hold of his heart, changed him, and he became one of the greatest builders of the church that the world has ever known. And God alone has the power to do that, right? God alone has the power to change a person's life, and he does it all the time. So if you're here today and you're a terror, repent. If you're here today and you're a builder, keep it up. Keep it up. Keep building. Keep telling people about Jesus and his power to change lives. This week, what we're going to do in chapter 4, the first few verses, is to come to an end of our talk about divisions in the church. It's been kind of the major issue on the front burner has been the divisions that are happening at the church at Corinth. Today we're going to, in some ways, wrap up that discussion, although it's always going to be in the picture for the rest of the book. We have heard Paul tell us how we should not think about himself and Apollos and Cephas and others. We've heard him tell us the mistakes that we can make. And what you're going to see today in chapter 4 
is the tone is going to shift to a very positive tone. He's not going to tell us any longer how not to think, but rather how to think. He's going to show us how we should think about him and Apollos and Cephas and others. And this is good. There are some very vivid pictures, and there is a huge encouragement for those who would lead today. I want you to know uh, that this text has rocked my world this week. Uh, It kind of came out of the blue. I don't think I was thinking ahead enough, and then when I sat down to study it, it was this moment of, oh, thank you. Thank you, Father, uh, for the way you've provided for me in in this moment. He has given me, I'm telling you, exactly what I needed, exactly when I needed it. And I want you to know that I got it this week. I got it. And 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 more importantly, it got me. Does that make sense? And and it's going to be really hard to explain that to you. And, and, and I think that lends credence to the fact that something big has happened in my heart this week. You know, when, when God does something profound within you, a lot of times it is hard to articulate that to people, right? When, when God so moves by His Spirit and His Word in your heart that, that your life is really turned around and your, and your whole outlook on things changes, it is hard then to explain that let, to a few people that you're really close with, let alone hundreds of people who are listening to you, some of, some of for the very first time. It's going to be hard for me to explain this to you, but I trust that God through His Word will work in you similarly to the way he worked in me. So today very much is evidence of me speaking to you uh, from the overflow of what God has done in my heart already. And that's the way it should be all the time, right? Um, and and uh, if you don't get it, I'm, I'm okay with that this week. Uh, I really am. I'm okay with it because it's done such good work in my life that, that, that it's enough. All right. Chapter four, verses one to seven. Beautiful. Look what it says in verse one. It says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court. In in fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not acquitted by this. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive. And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Let's pray. God, thank you for the gifts uh, that you have given uh, to us. Thank you for the gifts of leaders in the church that you have provided for us. Help us today to think rightly about those leaders, to regard them properly. Guard us from becoming arrogant one against the other. Show us today that everything that we have is a gift from you, and there is no room to boast except in you. God, thank you for the way your word works in our lives. I thank you that it is alive and active and sharp. I thank you that you are good to speak to us through it. And I pray that you do that today. God, that your word would change our lives that we would think rightly and live rightly and worship rightly in the truth. Help us. Help us today. We need it. Help us for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, basically the way we're going to do this today is... is, 
a little phrase or two from each verse. Uh, so basically seven points in the text today. Hopefully you'll see them all. I would underline them if I were you. That's what I've done in the text for me. Uh, notice in verse 1 uh, that again Paul is telling us uh, positively how to think. Look what he says. He says, let a man regard us in this manner. He doesn't say don't think of us this way. Don't think of us like that. Don't make this mistake. Rather he speaks positively. He says, let a man regard us. And the us there probably is himself and Cephas and Peter uh, and, and Apollos and other, Cephas and Peter are the same guy, right? Um, and other leaders of the church, even, even leaders here. We need to think rightly about leaders in the church, and that's what he's talking about when he begins uh, in verse 1. And then he uses two huge words, two amazing words that will, that will really give us a framework for what we're going to talk about today. The first one he uses is the word servant. He says, a little man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Notice that they are servants of Christ. They're not just generally servants, and they're not servants of the church primarily. They are servants of Christ. And that word servant is a big word and a powerful word, and it's a word that, that Paul likes to use. At least the English translation shows up all throughout Paul's writings. He will refer to himself as a servant or a slave over and over and over again. But this is a pretty unique word. This is not the word that he usually uses. This is not the word from which we get our word deacon. That's one word that is translated sometimes as servant. It's not the word that we get uh, our, our translation bond slave from. It's not that word that's his favorite to use. Doulos is that word in Greek. This is a different word. This is a unique word, and it is a very vivid word. And we can get a picture of what he's talking about here. The word that he uses uh, for servant in verse 1 is literally translated under rower. Under rower. And the picture is a Roman ship. This is, I'm telling you, if you had heard this in his day, you would have known exactly what he meant by this. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of hard work. It's a picture of pain. It's a picture of dedication. It's a picture of unappreciated service. There were these guys in these giant Roman ships who lived in the belly of the ship, and their job all day was to row a huge oar. That's all they did. And a lot of times there were several different levels of these rowers. And what Paul is describing himself as here is the guy on the very bottom level. The guy on the very bottom level rowing the ship. And this guy who rows the ship, he doesn't ask questions. He doesn't make suggestions. He just follows orders. He has a master who is telling him exactly what to do. There is a lot of times a drum that is beating so that he will row in perfect sync with the rest of the under rowers. You get the picture? You get the picture? This is a picture of humility. This is a picture of service. This is a picture of someone who is definitely under authority. One commentator in talking about this picture said this in conclusion. He says, Paul endeavored to pull his oar to the master's command in harmony, cooperation, and fellowship with all those who served. This is a pretty neat picture, right? And it's the very first picture. He says, if you want to know how to think of me, if you want to know how to think of Apollos, if you want to know how to think of Cephas, if you want to know how to think of your pastor or your Sunday school teacher or the other people who lead you, first of all, think of them this way. They're under rowers. They're under rowers. Humble servants of a master who simply take orders and do what they're told. Does that make sense to you guys? And I think the application for me was, I need to remember that's exactly what I am. I'm not the master. I'm not the one who's barking out the orders. I'm not even the one who's beating the drum. Simply the one who's pulling the oar, listening to the master tell me what to do, okay? That's the first thing he says. He says, number one, we are servants of Christ. And then he says, and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is the end of verse one. He says, we are, we are servants of Christ 
and two stewards of the mysteries of God. I want to talk to you first about that phrase mysteries. One of uh, either Joe, it must have been Joe because I listened to most of Aaron's. Um, Joe talked about this idea of mysteries in 1 Corinthians. That he's not talking, when Paul uses the word mystery, He's not talking about something that is hidden that only a few people can know about. He's using that language in in a provocative way because there were some people in Corinth that thought that's how salvation worked, that there was this kind of special knowledge. And if you were smart enough or clever enough or knew somebody that was on the inside who could share it with you, then you were in. He's using the word mystery there as something that used to be hidden but now is revealed. Right, this, this thing that used to be hidden but is now available and open, wide open for everybody. Through Christ and the preaching of the gospel, these mysteries have been revealed. And Paul says he is a steward of the mysteries of God. He is a steward of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the second picture that he paints. Now a steward is a little bit different from a servant or an under rower. A steward is a guy who does have some authority. A steward is a guy who is put in charge, not of his own things, but of his master's things. And he is given authority to direct and order other servants around. Does that make sense to you? The best picture we get of this is in the Old Testament. You remember Joseph's story? I talk about Joseph's story all the time because I love love the way God works in, in his story. But Joseph at one point in Potiphar's house becomes a steward in Potiphar's house. The highest servant of Potiphar. So much so that all of Potiphar's household was under Joseph's care, right? But Joseph, even though he had authority over the rest of the servants, he still was under the authority of Potiphar, right? He wasn't, he wasn't spending money that was his own. He wasn't dividing things up that were his own. He was working with all of the things that belonged to Potiphar. And that's exactly the way Paul describes himself. He says, number one, I'm a servant. I'm simply rowing the boat. Secondly, though, I'm a steward of these mysteries, that there's a lot of authority. There's a lot of trust that has been given to me as a minister of the gospel, as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you see this kind of... Um, uh, Tension between these two pictures. One is of absolute humbleness. One is of absolute submission to authority. Just pull your oar when the man says pull your oar. The other is one of organization and administration and authority, though still under, under the authority of one higher. Does that make sense? Do you see how that's exactly the way it works in ministry? Do, do you see that at one time uh, I am called to be just a rower, just pull the oar, and that's what I want to do today. I just want to pull this oar. He's told me to pull the oar, and I just want to pull it. And at the same time, though, there is this administrative side of things where every once in a while you do need to speak with authority, and you do need to speak into someone's life, and you need to direct and organize and administrate things. And that sometimes is a difficult balance to strike. That sometimes is a very difficult thing. But you need to understand, if you don't get anything else from verse 1, all of this All of this service, whether it's rowing the boat or whether it's being a steward, is under God. That Paul is answering to his master who is God, right? God is his master and there is no other. Verse 2 begins into the application of this concept. He says this, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. He says the one requirement and the one Judgment, the criteria for success of a steward is faithfulness. It is not dollars, it is not numbers, it is not power, it is faithfulness. If you are going to judge the success of a steward, the judgment is simply his faithfulness to his master. One commentator said this, this got me. He said, a steward may not please the members of the household, 
He may not even please some of the other servants, but if he pleases his own master, he is a good steward. Make sense? And that's where Paul is living. He can't seem to make the people in Corinth happy. He can't seem to make the people in Ephesus happy. He can't seem to make the people anywhere happy. But that's not his ultimate goal, is to make the people happy, right? His ultimate goal is to be a faithful steward to his master, who is Jesus Christ, right? That's what we need. That's what you should want for me. You should want me to want that. And we're going to see this, we're going to see this develop as he goes further. But in verse 2, the thing that you need to get is that the requirement... The requirement for a steward is trustworthiness. The requirement for a steward is faithfulness. Faithfulness to his own master. That's verse 2. Verse 3 says this. He says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. In this verse, Paul kicks it up a notch. The people in Corinth were making all kinds of judgments about him. And he, with the right perspective, says that judgment, that examination that you are applying to me, to me, is a very small thing. It is a very small thing compared to the ultimate account that he will give to his master. It's huge, right? Paul says, to me, it's a small thing. It's a small thing that you would examine me. He says, or any human court would examine me, or even myself. All of that judgment is a small thing. Why can he say that? Because he's got his eyes rightly fixed on the big thing. And what is the big thing? The judgment that will come from Christ, right? That he will ultimately one day stand accountable, not before a group of people, not before a tribunal of humans, not before even himself. Someday he will stand before the Lord himself, right? And his voice will speak, and his voice is authoritative. And that's what he's concerned about. Notice, though, that in verse 3, he doesn't say, it is no thing. I want you to hear that, because I don't want you to walk away from this text today saying, Chris doesn't care what we say. I do. I just want to get it in the right perspective. Because the struggle that I have, and this, this is tough for me to say, the struggle that I have is that sometimes all I care about is what you say. And it wrecks me. Sometimes I forget all about what he has to say and care only about what you have to say. Now, I don't want to go so far as to say I don't care at all what you have to say, that if you come in my office with some kind of complaint or some kind of problem, I don't want to get to the point where I say, oh, I don't care, just get out, just leave me alone. I don't want to get to that point. That's too far. Paul doesn't say it's no thing for you to examine me. He says it's a very small thing. It's a very small thing for you to examine me compared to the big thing that is the examination he'll receive from God himself. Does that make sense to you? It is a thing, but it's a small thing, and that's what I've wrestled with all week. Because we get this. Believe it or not, we get this every once in a while. (laughs) Uh, we We get the examination every once in a while and judgment every once in a while. And what I need to remember is that it's a small thing. It's a small thing that ultimately you are not my master. Ultimately, I'm not my master. It's not a human court that's my master. He's my master. Does that make sense to you? I hope you'll catch that because if we will all catch that, it'll be a good thing. (laughs) But I want you to know I've gotten it this week, and it's been very, very helpful. He says, to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 1 just real quick. 
Um, it's just a few pages over. And listen to him talk this way. In fact, as I read Paul's writings, I wonder sometimes if he struggled with the same things I struggle with um, because he talks about it so much. Uh, he talks about how to deal with all of that. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul says this, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Ultimately, he says, it's a small thing to please you. It's a small thing to serve you. It is a big thing to serve him. It is a big thing to please him. I wrote in my notes that on that last day, I won't stand before you. I won't stand before the church. I will stand before him. And what I want to hear on that last day is not you say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. That means nothing in the end, right? Suppose I were to get all of you to stand with me at the end and say, well done, Chris, well done. And Christ doesn't echo. Does it mean anything? No. Here's what we need to push for. Here's what we need to look for. Here's what needs partly to motivate us in our service to Christ is that on that last day, he would say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. That's what we want to hear, right? Why? Because he's our master, not other people. He's our master. He says, it's a small thing, very small thing, that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. Verse 4 goes along with that. He says, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet by this I am not acquitted. He says, I can't even trust my own conscience for the encouragement here. Because the truth of the matter is we could spend a whole day on that text and talk to you about the depravity of, of human beings, depravity of men, and how sometimes our conscience deceives us. Sometimes our conscience is deceived. Sometimes we think we're doing everything just right and we are way off base, right? We see that in Matthew chapter 7. There were a group of people who are going to stand before him on that last day and say, Oh, we thought we, thought we were doing it right. We thought, weren't, weren't, we, weren't we prophesying in your name? Weren't we casting? Weren't we healing in your name? What, what, we thought we were doing it right. And they're deceived. Jesus says, depart from me. I, I never knew you. I never knew you. Paul says, I can't even trust my own conscience. Sometimes I can't even trust my own conscience. So what does he do? He says, i got to wait. i got to wait for the one righteous judge. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet by this I am not acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. I think if you're going to circle anything in verse 4, you circle the word one. The one who examines me is the Lord. It's one, one judge, one voice on that last day that matters. One master that we answer to. And we've got to all remember that, that we serve him, and he will judge us in the end. Verse 5, some more application of this. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Like I said earlier, there is one voice that is heard in the end. We should wait for it. We should seek it. We should desire to hear him speak in the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, I think that's what he's talking about at the end of verse 5 when he says, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. I'm telling you, I live a lot of times for you guys to say, way to go. 
A lot of my day is spent hoping that someone will come by my office and say, boy, way to go. And I'm telling you, there are days when somebody comes by my office and says, I think this stinks. And my life is ruined. One conversation can turn my entire life around. And that's a problem. Not a problem because of the person who says it. It's a problem because of what's going on in my heart. It's not on you that one statement can ruin my week. That's on me. That's on me, and I need the perspective that Paul has. To me, it is a very small thing to be judged by you. I'm going to put all of my energy, all of my effort in serving him. All of my expectation looking for that day when he will speak. Righteousness and truth about the matter. Paul says we should wait because there's coming a day when the one voice that needs to be heard will be heard. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Verse 6 shifts gears just a little bit. But this is the point of the whole text. He says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. He says, So that from us you'll learn the pattern, you'll learn the example, you'll learn not to go beyond the word, you'll learn not to go beyond what is written. He says, I'm telling you about us so that... No one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. It's what's going on. It's what's going on in Corinth, right? Somebody is saying, oh, I like Paul. And it's no problem, really, to say, oh, I like Paul. I like what Paul does. I like, I like the way he preaches. I like the way he teaches. I like the way he serves. But when we say, I like Paul so much that it means we don't like Peter, that's a problem. When we say, oh, I love Paul so much, and I hate that Peter, he doesn't do it like Paul. You remember when Paul was here? He used to do it this way. Now Peter's here. He does it differently. It's no problem to appreciate, even like, one fella over another. But when we become arrogant on behalf of one against the other, we've missed the boat entirely. And that's what's happened in Corinth, right? People are standing up saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. Arrogance, pride, trouble, And destruction is what is waiting for them. And so Paul says, I'm telling you these things so that you won't become arrogant. And then the way we avoid the arrogance is found in verse 7. Verse 7 is the best part of the whole text. And the whole text is good, right? It says, for who regards you as superior? Nobody is the answer to that, right? Nobody. None of us, right? None of us. No one regards any of us as superior. Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Let's answer that question. What do you have that you did not receive? Not, not, not even your job? You worked hard to get that job, didn't you? <laughs> you worked hard to get that job. You went to school. You worked hard to get that job. You're telling me that you received that job as a gift? Absolutely. It's all a gift. We don't have anything. We don't have anything that we didn't receive. What about your health? Did you receive it? Yeah. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. And then he says this, and if you, did not, if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you had not received it? There's no, there's no room for boasting in the Christian life, is there? We're all simply the recipients of a wonderful assortment of gifts. We haven't worked for anything. He's given it all to us. Why in the world could we boast? We cannot boast. In fact, I'll show you this in, in Ephesians chapter 2. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. The punchline of the whole text 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is that it's all a gift. Paul has no reason to boast. He was a wreck. Christ changed his life. The Corinthians cannot boast. They are a wreck. And yet God calls them saints. We ourselves are ruined, and yet he loves us. Not because we're lovely, but because he's full of grace and mercy. Look what it says in chapter 2 of Ephesians. We go here all the time because it's so good. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. That's who we are. And that's what we deserve, wrath, right? Look at verse 4. This is good. No matter how many times you see it, this is good, right? But God... But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is a gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. We got any reason to boast? No. The cross takes away all grounds for boasting, does it not? The whole gospel of grace takes away all the grounds for boasting. Paul says you were dead, and you couldn't do anything about your deadness. You couldn't make yourself come to life. You were dead, and He made you alive. By grace, through faith. And then he clarifies it. He says, it's not a result of works. In case any of you are mistaken, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We cannot boast. We cannot boast because everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. You know what we deserve? Death and hell for eternity because of our sin. That's what we deserve. You know what we deserve? Not one good thing. And all that we have is a gift. All that we have is a gift, and that should bring us together, right? If we are all simply the recipients of gifts, we don't boast one over the other. We simply come to the one who gave the gifts, and we boast in him. We say, look at these gifts. Look at these gifts that you have given. Our associate pastor in Mississippi used to say, the giver gets the glory. When it comes to gift giving, the giver gets the glory. It's never about the one who receives the gifts. It's always about the one who gives it. The one who gets the glory is the giver not the receiver. We are the recipients of a glorious assortment of gifts, and we need never to forget it. You were dead. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for arrogance. Three applications today, and then we're done. Number one, we must pour our lives into serving Him. We must give ourselves completely to serving Him. We must be under rowers and stewards in his kingdom, we must recognize that our lives, if, if we have eternal life, if we are part of the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if we are part of that, we were redeemed to serve him. We were redeemed to tell others about the redemption. We were redeemed to pass it on, right? We were blessed so that we could be a blessing like Abraham was, right? And so we should give our lives to serving him. Paul did it, didn't he? 
Paul's a great example of this. Did Paul quit when it got tough? Did Paul quit when he got old? Did, did Paul quit when they said, we will kill you if you don't stop? He kept on preaching, didn't he? Kept on preaching. Why? Because he had this picture. This picture of being a servant. This picture of being a steward. This picture of a master whose judgment will come. Whose judgment is all that matters. And he desired to press on so that on that day, he would hear his master say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. We must pour our lives into serving him. Number two, we must be careful not to let others or even ourselves distract us from wholehearted devotion to him. This is where I struggle. This is it. This is, this is what God brought to my life this week. We must be very careful not to let others or ourselves distract us from wholehearted devotion to him. One commentator said it this way. He said, that's one of the devil's favorite tricks. To get us perpetually taken up with our faults and failings, our sins and shortcomings, so that we are permanently disabled from any real usefulness in the Lord's work. It's one of the devil's favorite tricks. And I got to think, a couple weeks ago when I moped around, right, sulked would be the proper word. I got to think the devil said, yes, yes, look at him, look at him. Not only is he not serving the people I've called him to serve, he's not even serving his own family. Look at this victory. This is all it takes. This is all it takes for him. Someone or two or twelve to come in the office and say some critical things and he's done. They will wipe him out. He won't even want to get out of bed. It's all it takes. And I got to think that the devil said, this is it. This is all it takes for him. And I'm so glad that as Satan speaks that, the Father speaks this. It just so happens that six months ago as we're making plans and we say, oh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians. It just so happens that God's plan is that we would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, on the day that I need it. And it just so happens that God says, through Paul, here's a very small thing for me to be judged by you or a court or even myself. There's one who judges. That's the Lord himself. That's what we need. That's what I need. That's what I need. And the last application is this. This is the best news of all. All of it is a gift of grace. The fact that you're here is a gift of grace. The fact that you can breathe is a gift of grace. The fact that you're still awake at the end of all this is a gift of grace. And the greatest gift of grace is redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, right? There's no ground for, for boasting there. Scripture's clear. We were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins, and He made us alive by grace through faith in Him. If you're alive today, it's a gift. If you're not, let me tell you this. He can make you alive today. He raises people from the dead all the time. Repent of your sins. Believe in Him and you'll have life that's everlasting and a perspective that can get through the troubled times here. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us to be passionate about pouring our lives into serving you. God, help us to remember that it is you that we serve. Whether tomorrow we go to school or work or the golf course, Help us to remember that it is you that we serve. 
You are our master. God, forgive us when we serve men. And we care more about what they think than what you think. God, teach us to pour our lives into serving you. And God, guard us from letting others or even ourselves distract us from wholehearted devotion to you. God, thank you for reminders like this. That one day it will all be clearly seen. And one day the one voice that matters will speak. Help us live for that day. Help us live in light of that day. And God, ultimately, we stand before you today to say thank you for grace and the gift of salvation you have brought to us through your Son. God, I pray that, that, that grace will overwhelm our understanding of every facet of life. That your grace and the gift of salvation will impact what we do at school tomorrow and what we do at home this afternoon and what we do on the golf course this weekend. God, I pray that that understanding of grace will impact everything that we do. That we will constantly recognize that we are the recipients of abundant grace and that we will live rightly in response to that gift. God, I pray if there are people in here today that don't know the gift of salvation, they don't know what it's like to be reconciled to you, they don't know what it's like to be forgiven and cleansed of their sins, God, I pray that you meet with them today that you work in their hearts in a way that only you can, that you show them the depth and reality of their sinfulness and the certainty of judgment against that sin. And then, God, I pray that you turn their eyes to Jesus and let them see mercy, grace, and love poured out in abundance as Christ took their place, suffered the wrath that they deserved, took their sin and died for them, and then rose victorious. God, I pray that the response in hearts and lives today would be repentance and faith. Repentance from sin and faith toward you. And that the world would be changed because of the work you do in this place today. God help us to respond rightly in Christ's name. Amen.